Last week on the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. Grabbing one real boob with my left hand and a fake boob in my right hand. And I think Mark Ingram is a better all-purpose back than Lamar Miller. And you had to have put the phone into the bowl when you flushed. I did reach the phone into the bowl when I flushed. I did do that for a fact. And and don't give me Leonard Fournette because Leonard Fournette could go out and run a 4-7-0 and be a lesser version of Derrick Henry. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Field Goals Sonic Truth Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And I'm here with Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. And today we have our second featured person on the show. We're bringing on George Kritikos. You can find him on Twitter at RotoHack. He's the host of the DLF podcast and the Filmmetrics podcast. How's it going, man? It's going great. You know, I'm a I'm a big fan of the show, so had a chance to listen to you know the last couple episodes. I know you guys brought up some some work that I've done recently, so you know had to had to make time for you guys, right? Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Are you alive, Matt? Are you here? I'm excited. I'm just here shaking with anticipation about the different conversations that George Kritikos and Nate Liss are going to have about Dynasty League football and Dynasty football players. It's a very exciting time because George hosts two podcasts of his own. I host multiple podcasts. Nate hosts this podcast. There's going to be a lot of talking. A lot of people on the show are going to want a lot of microphone time. You can already see this coming, and I love an elongated show. I love these shows that go Mm. over time. Time, one hour, two hours, three hours. Then we kick it to Nate. Then he has to take three hours of raw audio and somehow condense it down to something that people can actually sit down and listen all the way through. Is that a problem, Nate, if we just yeah. talk forever? Because I think that's what's going to happen when the three of us get together. OK, funny you would mention that, Matt. That That's actually going to be a problem for me, especially today. So I'm asking you guys, I'm begging you guys, we need to do an efficient show today. We got to meet our general timeline because I have got to be out of here in two hours. I've got something I have to get to. So we got to have a very efficient show. So let's uh, let's not do the marathon episode. I beg you. Yeah, you don't have to worry because Matt and I did the Football Diehards podcast and and we had a nice efficient hour and 50 minutes. So we should be totally fine. No, I'm already disagreeing with George. I don't think this is going to be easy at all. <laughs> no, this is going to no. be impossible. You knew, Nate, that this was going to be a special show. We we're going to have George Kritikos on with us all day for the first time. A three-way show with a lot to talk about. Why is this the day that you have this hard network out at the two-hour mark? Look, it was supposed to happen last week. It didn't. And again, I, I know I'm always the one that's trying to reel in the time on the show, but I've got to meet my brother. He's got a wedding coming up. I've got to go try on some stuff. So I have got to be there on time. So Oh, your brother's getting married. <laughs> he is getting married. Look, we, we don't need to go. We don't need to do uh, this. That's exciting. God. Yep. His fiance, she pretty hot. 
we are we really gonna do this are we doing this again what do you mean doing this again when did we ever talk about your brother's fiance look last two weeks ago it was how many times did i have sex with my wife in hawaii <laughs> last week it was the different size boob thing this week you're asking well, first me, of all oh wait no see mm. you're already mischaracterizing last week's conversation it was not about different sizes they were the same size they were different textures my original point was that one was of a different size. You mentioned the cyborg boob and the natural boob. It was just a difference of, of tales that we were telling. Anyways, look, this is totally going against what I brought up. This is not efficient right Does now. Does your brother's fiance have fake boobs? Not to my knowledge, Matt. So <laughs> is she attractive? She's she's pretty, yes. She's pretty? She's pretty. That's the that's the like 50-50 response where I don't know if he's gonna listen to the show and I don't want to say something weird, but I also don't want to offend somebody, so I'm just right there in the middle. There's nothing you can say about pretty, it's just plain. Wait. So she just called her plane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Two on one. Hmm. <laughs> we should really get into this episode, Matt. What do you say? Well, do you like her as a person at least? Does your yeah, wife yeah. like her? Does your wife get along with her? That's important. That's the first thing I would ask. Does your wife get along well with her? Mm, yeah, uh -oh. she likes her. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. This sounds kind of doomed. So she's not that hot and she's not that likable. That's what we're getting from the brother and the brother's wife. Those are important people that need to be on board with this. They don't need to be on board with this, but it's a really strong indicator if those two individuals are on board. And it sounds like you and your wife may not necessarily be on board with this. I think you're reading into this the wrong way. I think I'm sending smoke signals into the air and there's a little gust of wind and it's sort of changing up what it says. I'm not saying she's not attractive and I'm not saying that my wife doesn't like her. What I am saying, though, George, is I George, hold on. George, what is he saying? What do you think he's saying? George is an impartial observer here. What do you think, George? Well, Nate, let me ask, let me ask a question if I can just get a little more context. Are you the best man in this wedding? <laughs> I am not. And, and if I can add some context oh, God. back to you. Oh, God. What? Hold on. You have another brother? So watch this. No, I don't. But oh. he was the best man in my wedding. Oh, God. Right? Wait. So wait a second. <laughs> let me get this straight. She's not that attractive. You and your wife don't like her very much. And your brother went out of his way to slight you by not making him his best man even after you made him your best man. One third of those comments is correct. One third. The other two are, are wildly inaccurate, and you're saying things that I didn't say. So no, I am reading between the lines because you can't come out and say those things, so I am saying them for you. Have you or your wife considered an intervention with your brother and had a heart-to-heart -heart with him? <laughs> Is hey, this what it listen, feels like? Maybe you should give this a little more time. Are you sure you want to be doing this now? Uh, I feel like Nathan Powell right now. Well, Nate, Nate is probably not the person to give his brother the heart to heart. Maybe his best man should be the one to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Burn! Oh, 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 that was <laughs> dagger! A dagger! Uh, man, wow, what a contribution! Thanks, thanks a lot for coming on, George. Real.
It's great to have you. It's it's not bad enough that I've got the wall with the knives on it closing in and I'm backed up against another wall when it's Matt Kelly. But now I got him coming from the other side, too. I've got two walls that are coming in that are closing in on me. You know, I, I'm not an Iron Maiden, right? That what you're describing is an Iron Maiden. You can just call it an Iron Maiden. Fair enough. Iron Maiden. So I, I'm stuck in it. We, we should really get into this episode, Matt. You're you're going to get your three hour episode at this rate because I envisioned you up on the altar next to your brother whispering in his ear like Vince Vaughn, you're about to make the biggest mistake of your life, but you can't even do that because you won't be standing next to him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to be louder when I do it, I guess. The real real question is how far down the line from him will I be standing? Will I be the next one over? Because that's already an offensive position. But if I'm in the fourth position, I don't know how I'm going to live with that. Well, like, I mean, after the best man, it's all like based on height, isn't it? So if you're like the shortest one, you're like at the end of the line. So I won't be at the end of the line then. Nate, you're going to be at the end of the line because of the photographer. The photographer will ensure that you are the caboose in the groomsman party these You're guys the are way shorter caboose. they're too short for me to be the caboose i'm six two that these other guys are like five ten i will definitely be after the best man should be the best man but i'll be after the best man whoa we really gotta whoa, go whoa, forward whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on a second you're six two that is correct sir i've always envisioned you as a shorter person oh man come on bro nah. no 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 six You're tall two. i am tall that's impressive thanks man i don't I t- know why i did that to you i don't know why i made you short oh uh, that's fine you know we don't it's hard to tell how tall we are on skype so i i get that i look like i'm four inches tall on skype so it makes sense why you'd feel that way we honestly guys We're inches guys, tall let me reel this in we have got to do an episode today are you like I you know George. that i know that in, it's a computer screen i don't think you're the size that you are on my computer screen i know you're a full-size human in real life i just thought you were below average height i didn't think you were the same size as you show up on this little window on my computer and why probably, did you say four inches i don't understand uh, it's probably because i'm normally sitting down in a chair when we're doing our podcast is why you don't think i'm tall we, we don't talk about this sort of stuff i didn't find out how old you were till just the other day but why did you choose four inches because that's the way I appear on the screen, like you said. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you gonna chose a- four inches because of some weird direct proportionality to my computer screen, but I'm not sure. That is what happened. Look, we're going to get into this. Is it so, tri- Is it – so maybe you're just on the smaller side but not height? I'm not even – are we going to another level now? I'm not even sure where this is headed anymore. Look, I'm, I'm commandeering what's going on here. I'm going to solve this problem. All you're right, commandeering go. your own show. You're the host of the show. You're going to commandeer your own show. I'm stealing it back. I've got I've had my plane stolen and then I'm stealing it back. So I have to. All right, George, I got a question for you. You said that you do listen to the show and you heard us talking last week about the article you wrote, the youth wide receiver bubble, the young wide receiver bubble. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, I think that was uh, it might have been two episodes ago. It might have been the one uh, not with with fake boob. And with poop, but the one before that. (laughs) That's good. You remember our catalog better than I do, so I appreciate that. That was two episodes ago. So was there something in that that you wanted to add to it or something that 
we didn't bring up that you felt was critical to the article you wrote? Because we tried to give, you know, we tried to give a little bit of response to what you wrote. Unfortunately, we couldn't give it all the time that it was worth because it was a really great article. Um, is there something off the top of your head that you remember hearing that we didn't cite or something important about it that we could review? Well, first off, thanks. I appreciate the the kind words about the article. And, and I, I mean, Welcome you guys forward. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. See, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, honestly, you know, you, you hit some of the key points when, we were, when you guys talked about kind of 2014 and 2015 being these anomalies compared to what we've seen over the last 20 years. And, and honestly, you know, the thing I tried to convey throughout the article was, you know, it, it, I get it. You know, young guys that do well, that's that's obviously like the, the holy grail. But talent is talent. You know, you can't give away talent for the hope that maybe this younger guy's talented because the guys who do it once are more likely to do it again than the young guy who happens to have some hype. And, you know, obviously we can uh, we can talk about some of those guys. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's, you know, proven success and proven talent's always going to be first point And it's going to be the more valuable thing in Dynasty. And first round draft capital is not the equivalent of being an NFL producer. That's an important point. What you're seeing now with players from Kevin White to Brashad Perriman to Philip Dorsett, picking on that 2015 class because I disagree with you that the wide receiver bubble has anything to do with the 2015 class. I think the 2015 class is going to end up looking three years from now like just another class. It's Amari Cooper. He's it. You know, he's 2015. Exactly. Which is what you normally see. You see one star come out of the first round in most years. That's where they come from or in some cases later in the draft. But you're going to get that one star, that one shining light in the draft class. And that was Amari Cooper. It's really 2014, which was the massive outlier just because of the number of stars that produced at an early age that came out of that particular draft class. But in general, the reason why that was such an outlier is because on average, only 50 percent of first round wide receivers ever post a top 24 season in fantasy. Yep. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and what's funny is, you know, the 2014 class, I mean, obviously we've had a ton of success and then there's still some guys we're waiting on that haven't even hit yet. And everyone's still excited about the Dante Moncrief's. You know? That's right. Yeah. 2014 is going to be the gift that keeps on giving from Dante Moncrief to Jeff Janis. We'll talk about him later. But sticking with that 2015 class, Nate, is there a wide receiver in that 2015 class that currently has some hype that you object to? From the 2015 class, um, oh, probably. God, are you listening to the show? Are you doing the show? This is in red letters. You're the one before the show that went out of his way to say, hey, guys, serve this one up to me. I'm ready to slam it home, and I'm going to put it in all bold red letters. You just have to set it up, and I'll spike it away. So here it is. This is what I just I, – I just we George and I just built the runway for you to start talking about Devontae Park and UTH. So hit the throttle, Nate. Go. The way that you led into that, you made it sound like I don't like Devontae Parker or he's overhyped or something. I love Devontae Parker. Don't get me wrong. I think he's a great player and I expect him to be a good player in the NFL. But I disagree with what I have written here, which is UTH has Devontae Parker ranked higher than Antonio Brown and Des Bryant in their dynasty rankings. I think that's crazy. Sometimes you bring these things to my attention. This particular 
particular service has this player ranked ahead of this player. And my knee-jerk reaction initially is almost always, get the fuck out of here. That can't possibly be true. Send me a screenshot because I don't believe it. Yeah, this one's a fact. I know it seems too crazy to be true because we have beat the hell out of the Antonio Brown drum in the past couple weeks for good reason. Anybody who plays fantasy football knows that Antonio Brown is a transcendent talent. The guy's phenomenal. He's in his prime. His prime could continue way beyond what anybody speculates as you've brought up the Jerry Rice comparison. And if there's even any similarity there, we're talking another six years with Antonio Brown, something ridiculous. I mean, just what Antonio Brown could have left in the tank could potentially be more than Devontae Parker ever has, number one. And then number two, Des Bryant has been a product of injury and injury to his quarterback. So the fact that his stock has dropped at all is absolutely ridiculous. So, George, what do you think about this topic? I mean, what, what do you think about the Devontae Parker ranked higher than Antonio Brown, Des Bryant thing? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy to me. I, I mean, for me, it's Odell Beckham and Antonio Brown are in, in my rankings, a tier to themselves because obviously Odell Beckham's doing things we really haven't seen with a guy that young. And Antonio Brown's doing things that very few have ever done. I mean, when you talk about the Jerry Rice comparison, he's the only person other than Jerry Rice to have three straight years where he's had at least 1,499 yards. So both of them had 1,499 yard season. So I couldn't quite say 1,500, but they're the only two who've done it three years in a row. That's incredible. It it just doesn't make sense. Like, how can you take this guy who obviously is in rare company and put him behind a guy who's literally done nothing in the NFL? Because you're a slave to the wide receiver age curve for the entire cohort. And your model is such that you refuse to be discerning about how players age because that simplifies everything. If you can just put the wide receiver on the age-based productivity curve and just have him ride out his production into the horizon based on this curve, which is generated by looking at receivers from Steve Smith to Dwayne Bowe, then it looks like he's going to peter out in his early 30s. But that's not real life. In real life, when we step outside these models, it becomes clear that there's a stark difference between how Antonio Brown approaches the profession and plays the sport on the field and how Dwayne Bow approaches the profession and plays the sport on the field. And Dwayne Bow and all of the players like him that are flushed out of the league at age 30 are the ones that are defining the shape of that age-based production curve. But to shackle Antonio Brown to that career arc is to completely miss the point of who Antonio Brown is and will be to anyone that's paying attention. Well, you look at you look at these guys and and I'll I'll throw a few other names out there. So, you know, Antonio Brown now it's had back-to-back 1,500-plus-yard seasons. I mean, it's Marvin Harrison, Andre Johnson, Julio Jones, Calvin Johnson, and him. Rice didn't technically do it two years in a row. He had that 1,499 season in between, but let's just say he's in there too. We'll put him in there. Jerry, yeah. Jerry, we'll do this one favor for you yeah. because you played in an era where NFL teams ran fewer pass plays. So, Jerry, we'll go ahead and give you that yard. We'll do that favor for you. We're going to give you this one yard this time jerry but there will come a day where i ask a favor in return <laughs> you're gonna have to come on my podcast Think about Mar- <laughs> and you're gonna have to say that you're afraid of antonio brown 
that the first box score you check on Sundays is the Pittsburgh Steelers because you're afraid Antonio Brown is coming after your record. Is you're going to have to do this for me, Jerry. Is and that Luca Brasi? for you. Is that Luca Brasi going to Nate's father on the day <laughs> of his son's wedding? <laughs> is Jerry Rice the Luca Brasi in this situation? Uh, I don't know. Even when I'm quiet, I get slayed over here. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's someone in front of a microphone doing the worst possible Vito Corleone impression ever done in the history of podcasting. That's so bad. So bad. The point I was trying to make is you think about Marvin Harrison and Andre Johnson and to an extent, you know, Calvin Johnson and, and obviously Jerry Rice, all these guys aged well. Like they were elite guys who stood out above everyone else. So, you know, just it seems odd to me that Antonio Brown would be discounted for any reason. And and then with Des Bryant, similar type things, but it's just he's a touchdown machine. And when you look at his numbers and what he's done, it's similar company. It's these guys who have aged well, the Terrell Owens, the Chris Carters, those type of guys. So you talk about three straight seasons with 1500 yards or more including Jerry Rice. Thank you very much. Des Bryant posted three straight seasons of 12 touchdowns or more. To me, that's just as impressive. I am not looking at last year's numbers for Des Bryant. The least relevant set of statistics in the history of sports are Des Bryant's 2015 receptions, yards, and touchdowns. Nothing in the world of sports could be as irrelevant as that because before that, Des Bryant was one of these special receivers that was posting top five fantasy numbers while being outside the top 10 in targets. We talk about this all the time. How is it possible that certain receivers like A.J. Green can maintain elite fantasy production even while they're not leading the league in targets? That is special. Those are the sublime of the sublime receivers in the NFL. That's Des Bryant. And unlike Julio Jones, Des Bryant doesn't win with the same vertical explosion and fast twitch muscle fiber that Julio Jones does. People think of Des Bryant as a guy that goes up over the top of defenders because, yes, he can do that. But Des Bryant is more of a technician. He wins more with a, with a sound tactical approach than someone like Calvin Johnson, Demarius Thomas, or Julio Jones. And for that reason, I believe Des Bryant will age very well. I'm one of the few people that believes Des Bryant will be in the league at age 34, 35, potentially 36, and still be fantasy relevant. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. And I don't think any of us are trying to necessarily say that Devontae Parker couldn't become something. It's just, why are you paying for what ifs when you have, it's there. It may or may not ever happen. The first thing he has to do is prove that he can stay healthy for a full season. Once he does that, he has to prove that he can be productive for a full season. So he has to cross two major milestones before we start thinking of him like we think of the league's elite receiver. So how is it possible that you could have someone that's never done either of those things ranked ahead of a Des Bryant or an Antonio Brown, two of the best receivers we've ever seen who are still in their prime? The only way that's possible is if you're running an incredibly simplified formula that just factors in draft capital, age, and then 
places those two cars on the age-based productivity curve and rides out that roller coaster and you add up the production along the curve and that's your lifetime value for the player. It's the ultimate oversimplified formula that essentially removes any expertise from the equation. This is something I lament all the time, the over-reliance on draft capital. Because why are we here? If we can just plug in all these players into a formula, draft slot plus age times age-based productivity equals lifetime value, then we should all just go home. We should shut this podcast down right now because if it's that simple, why are we here? I think the one thing we've got to think about, and this doesn't come up often, but I think about this all the time. So I totally agree. Antonio Brown, Des Bryant, for different reasons, but similar reasons, should be ranked ahead of Devontae Parker in Dynasty ranks. Talk to me a couple years from now. That could change. But the one thing that you don't generally hear factored in is you have to get these lottery tickets before they blow up. Look at Allen Robinson the year he was a rookie. Look at Allen Robinson today. What you could have bought him for as a rookie, way, way cheaper than what he became. So if Devontae Parker will eventually ascend to a Des Bryant-like talent, to an A.J. Green-like talent, what you're paying for him today by drafting him ahead of these guys is nothing in comparison to what it'll cost you to get him after he performs on the field. So unless you want to overpay for sure shots, which works, I mean, why not? You get a guaranteed player, you get rid of draft capital that you don't have to bet on anymore, then that's fine. But if if you just let him go and say, okay, Antonio Brown is better, Des Bryant's better, and then all of a sudden, Devontae Parker turns into that prolific talent and plays eight years, nine years in the league and has a phenomenal career, then you just passed on the opportunity to have a guy that's just as prolific as these players. So sometimes you have to swing at those pitches, but I agree. At this point, Antonio Brown, for sure, no question, is the guy that I'm taking ahead of him. I'm also taking Des ahead of him, but I don't see Des playing nearly as long as Antonio Brown, and I do like Devontae Parker to be a great player in this league. So it, it's hard. It's it's two sides of the coin. It's do you buy him cheap now or do you overpay for him later? I agree you have to take swings, but you should not be taking swings in the early and mid rounds. That's not the place to take swings, and that's what I object to. When I see people drafting Devontae Parker and Kevin White in the early rounds, I disagree because there's this upside fallacy that the upside is built in, that this is a perfect market, and that the upside is built into the ADP. And so if you want to get guys that have real upside, you have to draft them early. You do not. And if you miss out on Antonio Brown and you miss out on Des Bryant and you want to get the next Des Bryant or the next Antonio Brown, in the next round, you're tempted to grab Devontae Parker. But I would not. What I would do is take someone who's still in their prime, who is capable of a WR1 season that isn't being appreciated. Before I take someone like Devontae Parker, I'm going to be drafting someone like Golden Tate. What do you think, George? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Golden Tate fan. Uh, Nick and I on, on Filmmetrics just broke him down recently. And I mean, and I think you guys talked about him a little bit as well. And, and I mean, you don't see guys like him. I would say the best person I can think of is Steve Smith in terms of his ability to elude, make tacklers miss, run over tacklers. You just don't see that very often. And I get that people look at his yardage numbers last year and they're a little disappointed because he had under a thousand yards, even though he had 90 catches. 
but he was used in a much different way. And guess who's gone now? You know, it's Calvin Johnson's gone. Calvin Johnson's gone? It, I mean, from what I hear. What? Where'd he go? What happened? I think he might have went with Ricky Williams to Africa or something. I'm not really sure. Ha! See? <laughs> I think Ricky Williams went to Australia. Uh, so, good day, mate. Let's put another <laughs> shrimp on the bobby. I think Ricky Williams went walkabout, and that was funny. I'm going to have to look at the news. I'm going to have to go to Roto World and try to find out what happened to Calvin Johnson. I don't believe you guys. It's not like Calvin Johnson's going anywhere. He's only 30 years old. So I'm not sure where you're getting your information. So, right, sure, Calvin Johnson's gone. Yeah, whatever. But nah. I like Golden Tate with or without Calvin Johnson. And if hypothetically we were projecting Golden Tate in a world without Calvin Johnson. The first thing I would do is go back and look at what Golden Tate did when he didn't have Calvin Johnson. And in Seattle, he was incredibly efficient, played the X receiver. And the only reason he wasn't a WR1 in fantasy is because he didn't receive the volume that was required. He played on a very low volume pass offense. But when he did get his opportunities, he excelled down the field and he was Russell Wilson's go to receiver for at least a year in Seattle. Then he goes to Detroit where he becomes the secondary option to Calvin Johnson. But in those few games where Calvin Johnson didn't play in 2014, Golden Tate was a top five wide receiver in fantasy. So he's shown us what he can do when he's the primary receiver. He steps up every time. So why wouldn't he step up this year? Hey, Matt, let me give you a tip of the cap too, George. I want to bring this up. Matt brought this up after we were off air last week. You know, a lot of people have the recency bias. It's the same thing we talk about with other players. But in this particular case, everybody wants to talk about his yards per reception, nine. And it was, yeah, obviously that looks terrible on paper. But Matt had brought this up last week. If you look at the teams, the team defenses that Golden Tate faced in 2015, there was a nightmarish group of guys he had to go through. You have the Seahawks on here. You have the Broncos on here. You have the Cardinals on here, the Vikings on here, the Chiefs on here. He had to go through a lot of tough teams. So to say that the regression is is all because of usage, and I'm not saying that you said that, but to blame it particularly on usage or a down season for him isn't entirely fair because he did have to carry a team with a hobbled Calvin Johnson, with a missing Calvin Johnson on a team that really didn't have an offensive identity. And he still posted 90 catches. And in fact, he had a 70.3 receiving percentage, which was his best receiving percentage in the last three years. So so though his yards per reception did dip, I think it's a really good point to note that he did face some pretty unbelievable defenses throughout the season. Yeah, and and honestly, I agree with you 100%. Uh, you know, and, and when you start digging into the numbers more and more, you start to see all these positive things. And, you know, I know that everyone, one of the big things with Calvin Johnson leaving is who's going to do the red zone work, right? It's going to be Marvin Jones or Eric Ebron or whatever, but I'd argue it might be Golden Tate because he's been so effective in the red zone, especially in Detroit. But I mean, his whole career, I mean, he's not a, you know, soft player. You know, he plays very tough. Not that I want to get into the, you know, more subjective film side that I'm not quite as comfortable talking about, but you see it in the numbers too. I wouldn't be surprised if the if, if he becomes an eight to 10 touchdown guy pretty quickly on a team that can't run the ball, 
who don't have any real red zone options that you could strongly consider outside of Golden Tate who are proven, maybe Marvin Jones, but even him, it was one season and then little else. So, you know, there's a lot of upside there that people are forgetting about. Golden Tate is incredibly underappreciated and it's evidenced by the Marvin Jones analysis where you have a number of fantasy analysts contending that Marvin Jones is superior to Golden Tate. And that's absurd. The thing I like about Golden Tate is he's the best in the league at something that is critical to wide receiver success, and that's yards after the catch. It's almost without dispute that Golden Tate is the best yak wide receiver in the NFL. He leads the league in yards after the catch per target going back through time, and only Jarius Wright on the Minnesota Vikings is even close. So I love my wide receivers to be the best at something. Marvin Jones isn't close to being the best at anything. Also, Golden Tate is a touchdown scorer. He, in fact, scored the most controversial touchdown in NFL history, which is something. That's interesting. That's just a fun fact. But also, the NFL is changing. And I, I think we saw an inflection point. Do you remember at the end of the Super Bowl two years ago when the Seahawks decided to throw a slant pass at the goal line and everyone was up in arms and what did pete carroll say pete carroll said that his head wanted him to throw the slant pass but his heart wanted to hand it off to marshawn lynch and his head won now why was his head saying that because the math says that that's the most efficient way to score a touchdown is with that quick hitter on the goal line. The quick hitters on the goal line are the most efficient way to score a touchdown. It's not handing it off and it's not the back corner fade. The back corner fade is a low percentage throw. The quick hitter at the goal line is a high percentage throw and it makes sense. You only need a yard. Why not just do a quick slant? Just think about it. The back corner fades overthinking it. Just do a quick slant, get the touchdown and move on. That's what was in Pete Carroll's head correctly. It just so happens that Malcolm Butler made a play that 0.01% of cornerbacks would make in that spot. That's why Malcolm Butler has since ascended to being one of the top cornerbacks in the league. It's not surprising. And then what happened the following year? Slot receivers have started to dominate the touchdown scoring. Doug Baldwin, he's going to regress big time. He can't keep it up. He, I have him projected for five touchdowns in 2016 because he's a slot receiver. Julian Edelman scored seven touchdowns in nine games. He can't keep that up. He's a slot receiver. Usually, the big receivers are the ones scoring all the touchdowns. And Golden Tate is a small receiver. So you can't project him for any more than four or five touchdowns. Well, maybe, based on what we saw in the Super Bowl and all of 2015, the NFL is changing. And the slot receivers are becoming the target hogs and red zone weapons. Let me throw two things out there. Number one, on that pass play, we threw the ball to Ricardo Lockett. Still, to this day, one of the hardest things to ever watch. Can you not do the we? No, I know no. This is I'm sorry. Okay, field. you're right. I know this show is brought to you by Field Goals. I get it. This is a Seattle-based show, technically. Field Goals is part of SB Nation and serves the northwest region of the country heavy with the Seahawks content. I, I totally understand that, but this is a nationwide show. Can you just pretend to be objective if you're going to be the host of a podcast that has a nationwide audience? Enough That's with fine. the we. Come on. We're, we're international, actually, Matt. I'd like to point that out. Number two. All the more reason to drop the we. All right. 
sense. That's fine. I don't care. I say we again. It was tough to watch. We didn't like watching it. But anyways, the point that I want to make in addition to that, I totally agree. The quick hitters to these receivers is is a big transition in the NFL and something that you could see happen more often. I remember watching Julian Edelman in the Super Bowl versus us on that whip route. And that is just a dangerous. You did it again. You just did it again with the. Uh, I can't help it. I bleed it. What do you want me to do? No, that bothers me. You're just trying to bother me. <sighs> so anyways, that cover on Julian Edelman, again, the whip route, that is, that's a tough cover too. So you get these quick receivers. It's kind of changing the game. If you can get the ball out of your hand as the quarterback on an unobstructed throw, you know, you got J.J. Watt, guys like that, batting down these type of passes. But these quick hitters to these receivers, I totally agree. If they can get into the red zone, you could see guys like Golden Tate jump up in their touchdowns almost immediately. So that's a great point by George. That was me! That was my point! No, George was the one that said, "I okay, yes, it was your point, but George is talking about the immediate increase in red zone opportunity and seeing him in double digit. He did say that in the beginning, is but I agree George with even here at this point, I feel like we've been bickering for the last 10 <laughs> minutes and George has logged off and he's went out, he went off and got a cup of coffee. Oh, sorry, there's a farmer's market down the street. I was just getting uh, some, you know, fresh, you know, rhubarb or whatever. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. The red zone thing, I agree. And and you look at, you know, whether it's been Jordan Matthews or Randall Cobb or whoever it is, I mean, you see all these guys have been successful there. And then add in the fact that Matt Stafford last year, when you look at his touchdown passes, almost all of them were in the red zone because they have no running back threat. And now you look at their roster this year. I don't feel comfortable saying any of them are going to be worthwhile in the red zone. You know, outside of Theoretic, Theoretic's probably their best option in the red zone, and it's going to be receiving. In 2014, with Jordy Nelson on the roster, Randall Cobb posted a 26.2 red zone target share behind 28 targets, 19 red zone receptions in 2014 for Randall Cobb at 510 was second in the league, which allowed him to post 12 total touchdowns that season. Well, and he was leading the league, I think, that season for a little while. I think at eight or 10 in like the first half of the season and then kind of slowed down a little bit when he got dinged up. But we're going to continue. George is going to continue to be shocked every year when slot receivers post double digit touchdowns. Oh, my God, this never happens. This is crazy. He's small. Only big receivers score touchdowns this is blowing my mind except it's happening every year now (laughs) so matt i'm going to transition here are you you've probably heard recently and i'm sure you have too george about brashad perryman and the not full but i guess partial acl tear when did this happen oh you didn't hear about this no he got hurt brashad did get hurt knee Brashad Perryman did hurt his knee, Matt. Is it Perryman or Perriman? Let's put this to George. George, is it pronounced Perriman, which is how I pronounce it, or Perryman, how Nate pronounces it? I pronounce it Perryman, which would be the way Matt pronounces it. Oh, that sounded like... Ding. Let's do a ding sound effect right there, <laughs> Nate. Let's do a ding sound effect. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that. you doing it with your mouth. I, I feel like the way George said it, though, was right in between the way you and I said it. Did, it didn't feel like he was one way or the other. That sounded 50-50 to me. Can you isolate that? bit of audio where you said i like how you did it with your mouth (laughs) (laughs) yeah whatever you want to do we can take care of it so question for you matt do you think that brashad perryman should be a warning (laughs) you can't do this what are you doing what you just mispronounced 
Austin again. We just did this. We just had a two-minute interlude to get the pronunciation of Brashad Perriman's name right. This Go ahead, do say it again. Say Brashad. Okay, the last name that you can't pronounce. Go ahead. Please, please get this. This is a regional enunciation problem. It's the same reason that some people call Oregon Oregon, and some people call Washington Washington. What? Tomato tomato. Wait, hold on, George. Do you know anyone that calls it Washington? No, nobody. Nobody calls it Washington. I live you just made here. that up. No, I live here and I hear this often. You cannot argue that you're mispronouncing Brashad Perriman's name because it's a colloquialism. <sighs> okay, Matt, would you say that Brashad Perriman was that hard? A, was that hard? It was difficult. It was strain. It was straining on me. I, I'm like literally oh. trying to look at the spelling of it and sound it out in my head at the same exact moment that I'm literally saying it. You abandoned your entire regional dialect in order to contort your vocal cords to say Brashad Perriman's name correctly. I feel like a method actor right now. It doesn't feel natural. Okay, so that's the whole point of method acting is they get to the point where it. <laughs> Does feel natural. I Understand know that, right? You know what? You don't know what method acting is, do you? I do know what it is, but I'm, I have to method act to pretend like this is actually the way that I would say it. When this episode ends and somebody and I are talking about Brashad, I guarantee out of my mouth it's going to be Perryman. Just like the other day, who somebody on Twitter corrected me for how I was saying I was saying Le'Veon Bell, and someone corrected yes. me because you it's Le'Veon. You should be corrected for that. Yes, you should be corrected then, for that. Then the Niles. Davis. I mean, I don't know what you want me to do, Matt. I want you to pronounce people's names correctly. I went through a whole series of podcasts where I was mispronouncing Devontae Freeman's name. I was calling him Devonta. And I went through a number of emails back and forth where the listeners and myself were essentially arguing. This was me behind a microphone by myself. So it was me arguing with myself, arguing with the listeners. But I finally came to the conclusion that it is important that I pronounce Devontae Freeman's name as he pronounces it. If he wants to go by Devontae, even though it's spelled Devonta, it's my responsibility to pronounce it correctly. And it is your responsibility because we're doing a worldwide podcast, apparently, that oh, you yeah. pronounce Brashad Perriman, Brashad Perriman, not Brashad Perryman. For the sake of our one listener in Saudi Arabia, I will get this name right. So again, for the fourth time, Matt, a question for you is Brashad Perriman. Would you say he's a warning flare for Kevin White owners? Isn't that obvious? I think it is. George, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm somewhere in between probably because uh, I, I do like Kevin White, but I, I get the concern and I'm with you there. I just always had Kevin White as a much better talent than Perryman, which is why I still like Kevin White. I don't put him ahead of, you know, Des Bryant or Antonio Brown, but I, I think he's a, a good prospect or was a good prospect. And I think he gets dinged a little bit unfairly for the, the older age. I'm not I'm a fan of Josh Doxson, so I'm not an ageist, but I'm also not a fan of wide receivers who underperform their athleticism. That, to me, is a red flag. The Stephen Hill corollary. If you underperform your athleticism, that's a worry. And for me, Kevin White is closely comparable to Brashad Perriman. I think they look like identical wide receivers. So when you look at you look at workout metrics, the sub 4540 at 210 plus pounds, both of them have 90 plus percentile height adjusted speed scores. They both 
both have good burst, huge catch radiuses, and similar college dominators. So across the board, Brashad Perriman and Kevin White look like doppelgangers. It's just that even though Kevin White is technically older, Brashad Perriman looks 30 years older than Kevin White. So my question for George is, why do you believe that Kevin White is a superior prospect to Brashad Perriman? Yeah, when I when I did some analysis last year and kind of looked at, you know, the the play logs, the game logs, everything and and kind of started breaking things down. I mean, you, you see the tendencies are a little bit different. You know, Perryman got a lot of his yardage, his touchdowns in these big clusters, whereas White had, you know, a little bit more of a diversified you know set of skills when you looked at kind of the short gains the long gains you looked at you know his consistency and so that's why I had him ahead initially and then I still have him ahead but yeah I definitely have dropped him in my rankings I don't have quite the same enthusiasm for him I had a year ago I think it's you know those injuries yeah I get it, it it's become easier to come back from but he's a guy who only really has one big year so even though I ever. like him yeah ever, ever. yeah even ever. though I like him ever I'm not in love with him so speaking of that George how consistent was Kevin White in his junior year at West Virginia when he posted a mere 35 receptions for 507 yards not nah, yeah I, I know I'm with you there and and what's tough is that you just don't know how these depth charts are being navigated things like that so I always try to normalize it out a little bit to see you know based on the opportunity they were given be it targets and receptions and snap share and those types of things and how does that compare to what the overall offense did he still was outperforming the rest of that offense he just didn't have the opportunity to be on the field as much so on one hand you say okay that means there's talent there and on the other it says but obviously the coaching doesn't believe in the talent as much as maybe he's proven on the field I think the argument there would be that in his junior year, West Virginia experienced abysmal quarterback play. Clint Trickett played half the season. Paul Millard played part of the season. And then Ford Childress played the rest of the season. And as a whole, the offense was horrendous. I mean, anytime you're talking about an offense that produced 3,000 passing yards, it's much harder to divide that up. And a lot of them are going to running backs like Charles Sims that year. So and Dreamius Smith. Is it Dreamius? Is that, how, I is that how you pronounce his name, Dreamius? I've never said his name on air before. I don't even know, to be honest with you. I want to say That sounds yes, like an but... amazing name. Yeah. <laughs> that, wow, what a cool name that is. That may be the coolest name I've ever read on the air, Dreamiest. I mean, Dreamiest, I just mispronounced it because I said Dreamiest. It was very cool. Dreamiest <laughs> right. is very close to Dreamiest. It's incredible. Uh, so right. they had a check down offense for a young and inconsistent Clint Trickett, and then in the next year, it's it looks like Trickett and Kevin White both ascended together. So I'm a fan of building these narratives to explain as long as that receiver had an epic year in his final year, which Kevin White did, just like Josh Doxson did. Kevin White transferred in from a junior college uh, and the idea that he would have transitioned in seamlessly would be a long shot. So I can build a narrative as to why Kevin White underperformed in his junior year and then was epic in his senior year. What I can't get past is the history of wide receivers drafted in the first three rounds that didn't play their first year in the league. Evan Silva came on the Football Diehard Show. Subscribe to the Football Diehard Show. Just go to iTunes, search for Football Diehards with Matt Kelly. And he looked at that whole cohort of wide receivers that missed their first year. And Robert Ferguson from the Packers was the best of that group. 
which is terrifying. So Kevin White broke out at a very late age. He underperformed his athleticism, and he belongs in a cohort that's headlined by Robert Ferguson. So for me, there's a lot of risk built into Kevin White, but like with Devontae Parker, he's being valued as someone who is a sure thing to eventually ascend to become a WR1 in fantasy. But I think the risk quotient for Kevin White is much higher than almost anyone else believes. And I was going to ask you, George, I I agree with that take, man. I was going to ask you between these two guys, I realize that they're both first round picks. And of course, we've noted that Kevin White was was superior as a senior. And, and that's the assumed production that you should get right from a guy that's the oldest, biggest, most mature player on the field. He should be physically dominating anybody that's an underclassman or not as physically built as he is. But I guess my question here is both first round picks. How much of it does it matter that Brashad Perryman was X amount of picks later than Kevin White was that Kevin White was a top seven pick versus where Perryman was selected by the Ravens? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you do the analysis, right? And and you're definitely going to see more hits in the top 10 than the top 20 or the top 30. I get that. The thing to me that people sometimes fail to remember is Perryman wasn't really considered a first round pick until really late in that draft process. And I think a lot of people were shocked when the Ravens made the pick. I mean, there were leaks that it was going to happen. But I think in general, the idea that they would get him was a shock and it was a team need. So the fact it was a shock was kind of surprising. But with a guy like White, and I I agree with you, you know, you're you're that physically mature in college. It's a little bit easier to be dominant. And, And the thing I'll say about White versus Perryman and what people I think sometimes fail to remember is when a guy is out, like the time that they're out, right, there's that injury discount and everything like that. And so a lot of people say, hey, buy low, buy low. There's no injury discount with Kevin White. That's the that's, problem. This is what's killing me. That's that's exactly it. There's there's no injury. There never was an injury discount. And when you lose a full year of production and they have to sit on your bench, I'd rather wait the 12 months if you're going to buy and if you do believe and pay basically the same price because the price doesn't jump that much until they hit the field again. So it's like, why buy him while he's injured and assume this buy low because there hasn't been one. I'd say maybe with Perryman there is because now it's multiple injuries, but I'm still not excited about that. I have them in one or two leagues and I'm going to sit on them because I'm not going to get any value for them. And that's the risk I'm taking. Right. And Kevin White can't get any more expensive than he was right after he was selected number seven in the draft. I mean, after his combine, everybody lost their minds. And then he was drafted number seven overall to the Bears, a team that had Alshon Jeffrey, but didn't have a number two and is a team that has a a gunslinger quarterback. So there was a a serious ray of hope that he could be a big producer in the league. It's worth remembering, too, that after that combine, Sports Illustrated ranked him ahead of Amari Cooper on their rookie rankings sports illustrated sports illustrated did that which is kind of crazy but something else that's crazy to me is this idea that draft capital is the definition of a player's worth value of their worth it's not draft capital is a factor but what i'm seeing now is this distillation process that basically says age times draft capital is prospect valuation which takes me back to something i said earlier if that's going to be your process then why do we exist why are we here as fantasy analysts let's just all shut it down shut down player profiler shut down film metrics shut down sonic truth podcast 
podcast host a one simple website that allows you to type in the draft slot times age hit a button and there's your valuation we can all go home everybody we don't need to be here but that's not it the reason we're here is to be discerning about these things is to say kevin white is not the same as odell beckham jr even though his draft slot was ahead of odell beckham jr and mike evan and brandon cooks he's not better than brandon cooks brandon cooks was a superior wide receiver prospect before he was drafted and after he was drafted than kevin white was before he was drafted and after he was drafted and from now until the end of time brandon cooks will continue to be an intrinsically better player than kevin white draft capital be damned so because i believe i have a role to play in this industry which is to identify who these outliers are because it's clear that the late round players are outliers that for whatever reason and i don't understand all the mechanics why this is the case nobody does but for a number of reasons the late round pick hit rate is much lower than the first round hit rate which as we mentioned earlier is still only 50 percent you can't tell this to the draft slot zealots the draft capital zealots don't want to hear that the first round picks have only a 50 percent hit rate because to them the first round picks have a 100 percent hit rate even nelson Aguilar, and the late round draft picks have a zero percent hit rate even someone like jeff janice who had one of the epic performances in nfl playoff history it doesn't matter he was a seventh round pick that means he's irrelevant you can forget he exists focus all of your attention on first round picks and that to me is the essence of bad analysis to me comparing jeff janis to kevin white is the great litmus test for a fantasy analyst if they are dismissive of jeff janis if they assume that kevin white will produce like any other top 10 wide receiver that we've ever seen well then they don't know what they're talking about then you can feel free to either unfollow or mute that person on twitter because they're not providing any value again they might as well just launch a website with those two inputs and a equals button and walk away from the industry because i have jeff janice ahead of kevin white and dynasty i have jeff janice ahead of kevin white because jeff janice is not Moritz Bowringer. This comparison of Jeff Janis to Moritz Bowringer drives me crazy. Moritz Bowringer is not a thing. Neither is Marquez North. Remember Brian Timms? We talk about how Kevin White underperformed his athleticism at the college level and thus far as a professional. That's a red flag. But the reason why Jeff Janis is infinitely superior as an NFL prospect to Moritz Bowringer is because Jeff Janis did did not underperform his athleticism at Saginaw Valley State Jeff Janis posted over 100 receptions and led division two with 1600 plus receiving yards nobody talks about this and it is my number one frustration in all of fantasy football that Jeff Janis is characterized as an unrefined player how the fuck can you be unrefined and lead an entire division of football in receiving yards and receptions? That's 
asinine. You can't say that with a straight face. Yet most people that analyze fantasy football believe that is the case, that Jeff Janis is this straight line-ish body catcher who's completely unrefined and will probably never build trust with his quarterback to ever be a starting receiver for an NFL team. Would you two agree that what I just said is how most fantasy analysts perceive Jeff Janis? Yeah, I would. I, I totally agree. And I think I think Janice being sort of the, the key guy here, but I think you get a lot of this with these late round picks, but Janice has the athleticism. He flashed on a big stage. I will say this. I know you've been a big time Janice supporter, but I doubt you had Janice ranked ahead of Kevin White after the NFL draft. I think seeing Janice do what he did, then hearing the positive things that have come out of camp now that he could be the number three receiver. He's playing with one of the most prolific, efficient quarterbacks to ever play the game in Aaron Rodgers. And then on the other side, you have Kevin White, who was already aged, had one year of of high-end college production. Unfortunately, it was as a senior. And then he gets hurt, misses an entire year of the season. And you can make a case that Janice would be ranked ahead of Kevin White. But we haven't seen Kevin White yet. So this comes back to my argument about Devontae Parker. You can buy Devontae Parker cheap before he blows up, or you can pay for him later. It's the same thing with Kevin White. It's like right now we're, we're betting on Janice because he's proven it on the field and we haven't seen Kevin White yet. But the minute that Kevin White steps on the field and produce, his stock's going to stay right where it's always been. And I agree, there hasn't been an injury discount, which blows my mind. But yes, I think that analysts are way down on Jeff Janice because he's had the information come out of camp that he needs to work on his fundamentals. And he was just a seventh round pick, right? So that's always a knock on players. It just depends on what news you want to read. There's plenty of glowing reports about Jeff Janis, but those that are predisposed to diminish Jeff Janis's ability and potential, they're going to pay very close attention to anything regarding Jeff Janis's inability to build trust with his quarterback, and they're going to ignore the news that he has been routinely burning every member of the Green Bay Packers secondary each and every practice throughout OTAs. Kevin White, on the other hand, has quote-unquote looked like a work in progress at OTAs during Bears minicamp. So that's one of the reasons why I do actually have. It's a fact. It's true. You can go to my rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings, and you can see it for yourself. I have Jeff Janis ranked ahead of Kevin White in Dynasty. It hasn't always been the case. There was a time when I had Kevin White ranked ahead of Jeff Janis in Dynasty. But like with a lot of fantasy analysts, I practice a Bayesian process. As new information comes out, things adjust. I don't have a static projection formula that just looks at draft capital times age equals lifetime value. No, no, I'm a Bayesian. I look at what is the reality of the moment. And in this particular moment where we are, June 18th, 2016, the United States, planet Earth, whatever <laughs> fucking solar system we're in. I don't even know the name of our so what's the god damn it. Pissed. Every time I talk about Janice, I start knocking shit over and getting mad. I'm gonna throw some god damn. I don't know the name of our sun. I don't know the name. I know we call it the sun, but I'm sure there's some special name for it amongst astronomers. NI 56 50 I don't know the name of the sun in whatever it is. If, if you were one of these 
uh, astronomer uh, is, I guess I was just about to, I was going to do what Nate did, which is to essentially describe everything about an astronomer without actually calling them an astronomer. <laughs> I was going to call them the people that make maps of the universe. What are the, what are those people called? Uh, astronomers. Yes. Whatever astronomers call our sun. I don't know what it's called, but our location at this particular time in the space time continuum for me and how I value dynasty players, I have Jeff Janis ranked ahead of Kevin White because, yes, draft slot matters. But again, we could just sort all these players based on draft slot and go home. But that's not why we're here. We're not draft slot zombies. And the reason why you can't do that is because we're here to identify the players that the NFL scouting industrial complex got wrong. Jeff Janis is one of the players the scouting industrial complex got wrong. And yes, it's because he has the size and the athleticism. Based on that alone, he should have been drafted much higher. But it's also because he was a mega producer at the college level. And to this day, no one will talk about that. There's also a draft capital paradox that I believe that Jeff Janis now going into his third year has finally overcome. The draft capital paradox is so powerful that I believe it dooms some players who would have otherwise been able to be starters at the NFL level, but because they were seventh round picks or they went undrafted, they landed on teams and depth charts where they were never given an opportunity and the time ran out on their career before they ever had an opportunity to ascend to a starting role and show the world what they can do. I'm very worried that this is what's going to happen to Wendall Williams in Houston. I believe Wendall Williams could be an NFL starter if given an opportunity, but because he went undrafted and because now he's banished on this nightmare of a wide receiver depth chart that now includes a redundant receiver drafted in the first round and Will Fuller, I believe that years could go by Wendall Williams will never get an opportunity to ascend the depth chart and he will end up retiring from the NFL having never been anything statistically, whereas if he landed on a different team with different draft capital, with a different depth chart, everything could have changed. It's like that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors. The draft has a sliding doors effect on so many players. What if Kelvin Benjamin had gone to Saginaw Valley State and was not able to showcase his skills in a national championship game? Where would Kelvin Benjamin be right now if he was not a first round draft pick because of the performance he had on the biggest stage after posting a mere 1,000 yards with Jameis Winston as his quarterback. We talked about rationalizing Kevin White's junior year because of subpar quarterback play. There's no rationalization for Kelvin Benjamin merely posting 54 receptions for 1,000 yards in what is the equivalent of a player's senior season at Florida State with Jameis Winston. There's no way to know what that player would have done if he was not bequeathed the starting role by the franchise that drafted him in the first round and felt obliged to give him the starting role based on draft capital alone. If Kelvin Benjamin went to Saginaw Valley State and was a seventh round pick, he may be out of the league right now. We don't know where he would be. And so it's our jobs as fantasy analysts to identify what seventh round players have the potential of a Kelvin Benjamin or a Jeff Janis. And then as the years go by and events 
impact that player's ability to climb the depth chart, we then have to adjust our dynasty rankings accordingly. And because I'm constantly going through that process, I now have Jeff Janis, who is tethered to Aaron Rodgers for the long term, ranked ahead of Kevin White, who's tethered to Jay Cutler for the short term and to who knows for the long term. Well, that, of course, is Matt's take on Jeff Janis. Loves him. It's a lot of good points. And Matt always gets super emotional because of obviously what he reads online and the negative stuff that's about Janis. George, you're featured on here. What's your take on the Jeff Janis thing? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the big points Matt hit and, and I would love to, to emphasize again is, you know, this draft capital thing and kind of how everyone views it. They, they look at it the wrong way. The only thing that draft capital guarantees is a chance for immediate opportunity. That's it. You know, after that, it, it tells you very little. Like, yes, I get it. In most cases, first round talents are going to be greater than seventh round talents, right? Or sixth round or whatever. That said, like Matt kind of pointed to, you have to be willing to have a fluid set of rankings that react to the various things that are going on. And it's the exceptions to these, you know, oh, this person was a first round hit. You know, everyone's going to get those, you know, but it's that sixth round hit. Those exceptions are going to be the difference between a good dynasty team and a great dynasty team, because those are the guys you need to hit on who are going to put your team over the top. Because Nate, like you said, yeah, you can overpay for Devonte Parker early, right? And you can do that and do it before it, he hits, or you can take your shots on the guys like Jeff Janis, where you see the talent and you see a guy who could emerge and could become this great talent. And you're paying much less even now than what you're paying on Devonte Parker. And, you know, depending on what you think the risk is that, that price tag for, for Janice today is probably a heck of a lot more palatable than it is for someone like Devonte Parker. George, how do they follow you on Twitter and remind us of the various podcasts that you host? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on Twitter at RotoHack. I host the DLF Dynasty podcast with Jeff Miller and Nick Whalen. And then I co-host the Filmmetrics podcast with Nick Whalen as well. So, so Nick and I have a lot of time together. Exactly. And you can subscribe to those shows on Stitcher and iTunes. So what I'm hearing... Just confirm this for me when we're having a value conversation based on where they're being drafted. If you had to pick a player in any given draft to select for your team at his current dynasty ADP, would you select Kevin White, Devontae Parker or Jeff Janis? Jeff Janis. I've never felt bad about hogging the microphone in my life until this very moment. Oh, you mean that's the end of the episode? Sorry, I blacked out, guys. How long was I talking? (laughs) Yeah. I'm assuming George is Michael Floyd, so is Nate Liss John Brown or Jerron Brown? That's what I just said. I'm Jerron Brown. I can tell. I felt like Jerron Brown out there. (laughs) I wanted to be J.J. Nelson. That's what I wanted. Moritz Bullringer is not a thing. 
fuck can you be unrefined and lead an entire division of football in receiving yards and reception? George, every single show <laughs> starts with Mr. Audiovisual himself, Nate Liss, having audio problems. Yeah, man, it was good having you on here. Different dynamic, that's for sure. No, I appreciate it, guys. This was a lot of fun. I actually didn't feel the different dynamic at all. I just usually <laughs> sit here and say what I want for as long as I want. George, no matter what you say, I'm going to repeat something you said. I'm just going to let you no, know. No, no, I've, I've listened to every episode. I know what happens. <laughs> this is yes. like a haunted house with built-in trap doors. <laughs> and Nate can never make it through the maze. <laughs> We start the show late. Audio every engineering week. fault. Whose fault is this? <laughs> you you took a shit last week, and that's why we were late. Wow, you've rarely oh, messed gosh. up the beginning. I know, man. I'm just trying to pull this up. It's not easy to mess up what's up. It's not easy to. I just did it. Wow, <laughs> it is <laughs> easy. Yeah, I just did it. There's nothing you can say about pretty. It's just plain. Wait, so you just plain. called it plain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Two on one. Hmm. Yeah, Nate's going to repeat. Matt's going to call him out for it. Nate's going to deny it at first and then try to say that it was an original point somehow. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm you're... I'm looking to see. I'm shitty. Is that what you're saying? Are you, you're fucking with us at this point, right, George? People respond. I feel like George no, is fucking no, no. with us now. George is messing with us. The United States, planet Earth, whatever fucking solar system we're in. I don't even know the name of our... So what's the... God damn it. Yes, every time I talk about Janice, I start not... Knocking shit over. <laughs> Can you actually make it five minutes, Matt? This is me being for real about the efficiency. I'm done. I had the rant. It's over. Was it good? You were never done. Was it a good? <laughs> no, you're never done. You're the you're the magician who's pulling no, the handkerchiefs no, out of his pocket. And I'm like, when are they gonna stop coming out of his pocket? If Jeff, where do you have to be? I already said where I have to be. We started the fucking show with this topic. Are we gonna do this again? Slow, slow, and make this. We're, doing, we're going out on this. You're not okay. giving him enough microphone time during this testing process <laughs> to first even make a judgment call about his audio quality. Could you it just sounds be quiet fine. for a minute? Okay, go ahead, George. All right. Yeah, I'm talking now so you can hear me it okay Sounds now. fine. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. He, he had to get no. in that one thing where he interrupted you at the very end. Had to get that in. Sounds good. Sounds good over there. Oh, man. George, say some things one more time. Okay. I'll just keep talking until you guys tell me Sounds to stop. good. Sounds good? Okay. <laughs> Have you or your wife considered an intervention with your brother and had a heart-to-heart with him? <laughs> well, Nate, Nate is probably not the person to give his brother the heart-to-heart. Maybe his best man should be the one to do that. <laughs> Burn! <laughs> Oh, that was <laughs> a dagger! A dagger! It's over!